Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. Happy Easter. I hope you've eaten a lot of chocolate and had a bit of a break and some walks under blue skies and in the sunshine. It's a bank holiday Monday, so I do hope you're having a bit of a break. Uh, I know that some of you won't be able to have a break that you're working away today. But anyway, wherever you are, I hope you are well. Later in the episode, I'm going to be talking to Sue Rainsford. Now, she is the author of Redder Days. It's a dystopian novel, which is all about a great contagion that sweeps the world. So if ever there was a case of art imitating life, this is it. Redder Days is about twins, Adam and Anna, living in the aftermath of a commune, a sort of failed commune, a commune that was set up in relation to this perceived end of the world. But the end of the world, as I say, has been substantively delayed. So the majority of the commune members have left and it's just Anna and Adam with their deteriorating leader, this man called Cone who is sort of still clinging on to these last um, tendrils of power. Before we get down to that, I've been thinking a lot this past weekend about a woman down in Dingle County, Kerry. A woman who in June 2018 was raped as she slept in her bed, raped by a man who was a trusted family friend, a man called Connor Quaid of Monaree in Dingle. He was sentenced last week uh, to six and a half years in prison after being convicted of the rape. But at that sentencing hearing, the woman and her family who had travelled up to Dublin from Kerry had to sit and listen to a series of glowing testimonials read out about her rapist, saying essentially what a great fella he was altogether. There was one, for example, from the owner of the pub where he worked, saying he was the best employee he'd had in 25 years. There was another from a retired detective sergeant, again praising him. And another one about what a fantastic team player he was on the local GAA team. Now, understandably, all of that caused the woman and her family a lot of hurt. Um, I should say that these testimonials these character references that are used in court cases are perfectly legal. But this latest example of them being used in a sexual assault case has actually led to Justice Minister Helen McEntee saying she's open to meeting with the victim and discussing her and her family's call that such testimonials in sexual assault cases should not be allowed to happen and that they should be outlawed in sex crime sentencing. The family have said it was like a second slap in the face uh, to listen to them. And also it should be said that Conor Quaid had, had denied rape uh, in, in June 2018, but the Central Criminal Court convicted him of the crime um, in a majority verdict after a seven day trial. And just to tell you a little bit about what that crime involved, 
Quaid had travelled to the woman's home after a night out drinking in a nearby town and he was aware that her family were away. On holiday, he went into her bedroom and raped her while she was curled up asleep in bed. And the woman uh, got in touch with him the next day on Facebook. And in those social media messages that Conor Quaid sent back, the prosecution said that he was accepting of his guilt. Um, He was told in the Central Criminal Court that he had abused the family's trust and had shown no remorse. And in the woman's victim impact statement, she said to him, you did whatever you liked. I had no choice on that night. You made me feel like I was worthless. I know some people held me responsible and that is difficult when I am the victim. And any of you listening who know when something has happened to you and you're made to feel like it's your fault, how devastating that is. Um, there were eight testimonials altogether submitted to the court. Um, I'm going to read you out the one from the GAA person who thought it was, uh, you know, a good thing to do to sit down and write in praise of this person. He said, I have known the Quaid family for over 20 years. And as a consequence, I've known Connor since he was a small boy. I'm aware of his recent conviction. He was involved with Dingle GAA Club as an underage player and always played as a team player and got on extremely well with all the mentors and teammates and always listened to and took advice. So, I mean, yeah. The Irish Independent actually spoke to the father of the victim, the survivor, and he said that the testimonials had caused huge upset and anger for his families. He said the testimonials should not be allowed. There are lots of rules around the victim impact statement and the victim can be questioned on that by the defence barristers. But these references are written without any rules or legislation to them. And these statements were designed to get time off his sentence and could cause hurt and further victimisation to the victim. Nobody thought of us or the hurt it was cause us. The first they heard of it all was when they were up in court in Dublin and they found it shocking and appalling. And I have to say, I completely agree. They basically feel it shouldn't be allowed and that it should be stopped. So maybe when they meet Minister McEntee, that might help. It's too late for them. They've already experienced that. But perhaps I think their hope is that it won't happen to anyone else uh, because they basically feel that character references like that in sexual assault cases are going to make it harder for victims to come forward. So I just wanted to mention that case because I have been thinking about that woman. The idea that these men could sit down and write all this praise for someone who has raped a young woman while she slept in her bed. Testimonials that were written in the hope that the sentence might be reduced. It's just mind boggling to me and so distressing for that family and for that woman. And we are thinking of that young woman today and her family and all victims of sexual assault on the Women's Podcast today. Now, when Sue Rainsford submitted the draft for her latest novel, the timing was spooky to say the least. Redder Days is a dystopian fiction novel set in a world racked by climate change and a mysterious contagion. So we're not exactly saying she put a hex on us by writing a book about a pandemic, but it's a coincidence to say the very least. The book opens somewhere in the recognisable future on a kind of survivalist commune. The action takes place after a climate disaster has caused mutations 
in animals and humans and sparked a contagion that is referred to only as red. The mysterious affliction appears to cause red swelling, blood and scarlet staining. The book opens with the words from the commune leader Cohen. The planet, thus distressed, had found a new way to purge. But we did not know why everybody it moved through, it moved through like a storm. Sue Rainsford is a Dubliner who as a young person spent time in America travelling for her father's work and she studied history of art at Trinity College in Dublin and also works as an arts writer. While studying visual arts, she read Simone de Beauvoir and became fascinated by the poetic, metaphorical language around the female experience, which is deeply inspiring to her in her own work. Here she is, Sue Rainsford. Sue, thank you very much for joining us on the Women's Podcast. Tell me how you came up for the idea of Redder Days. Hi, Roisin. Thanks so much for having me. Thrilled, thrilled to be here. Uh, yeah, Redder Days, it sort of came to me in stages, you know, over the years. Um, but the first, the first, the initial idea or the initial kernel is sort of how I've come to think of it was years and years ago, I think in 2013, when I just started thinking about two people living in an isolated, a rural landscape, a strange landscape, and they believe that the end of the world is coming. But it's delayed and they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And I, I started thinking about the belief systems that you would construct inside of that prolonged, lingering period and what that would do to your psychology and what that would do to your relationships such as they were, such as they can be in an environment like that. And then the years went on and I was sort of coming back to it and thinking about it, putting it in the drawer, taking it out of the drawer. And then um, different artistic influences, predominantly the work of Anna Mendieta, kind of came in and started to suffuse that initial template with different images and different ideas. So what is Redder Days about for everybody listening? So Redder Days is about twins, Adam and Anna, uh, living in the aftermath of a commune, a sort of failed commune, a commune that was set up in relation to this perceived end of the world. And But the end of the world, as I say, has been substantively delayed. So the majority of the commune members have left and it's just Anna and Adam with their deteriorating leader, this man called Cone who is sort of still clinging on to these last um, tendrils of power. But, you know, I like to think of it more broadly. That's sort of the plot or the narrative. And then I like to think of it as a novel about power, a novel about transgression and taboo and sibling relationships and intimacy and just how relationships can turn toxic and fatal over time. And tell us about red, because that's the disease or the pandemic that's going on. And we'll talk about how kind of, you know, uh, it's sort of life imitating art or whatever you want to say, <laughs> the fact that we're in this global pandemic now. But it's a really interesting how this red kind of uh, manifests in people. Yeah, I, I suppose at first I was thinking about just red as a substance and and how interesting red as a stain or as a residue is on human bodies and how we interpret bodies that are staining in some way, you know, like menstruating bodies or sick bodies or maternal bodies um, or any body that's gone through some sort of surgical procedure. So I started thinking about that and I was like, well, how could just 
the appearance of red in this more literal or kind of magic realist way almost, how could that speak to some of the experiences that a body that stains in the real world um, undergoes? So yeah, then it's, I kind of, I was playing around with that and playing with these different images and red sort of stands in for instances of taboo or transgression, like I say. So the red bodies in the book are bodies that have undergone some sort of transgressive experience and they've gone outside the the, uh, the realm of etiquette or they've, uh, they've broken with societal etiquette in some way relating to desire or love or, you know, just these perceived norms we have around gender and motherhood especially. And tell us about what happens to people then when they are affected by this? Yeah, so they start to, they, it affects people differently, but they wear they wear their redness, you know, they start to wear the fact of their otherness. Um, and so some people, you know, they start to secrete red from their mouths or um, they shed it as a second skin. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of, and I suppose, you know, when people talk about the book within, you know, under this kind of genre term of horror, I think that's where the horror comes in for people is how is how different characters start to demonstrate or secrete the the redness as a as a material bodily fact. I mean, it's it's funny because your blurb for the book, it says something like Sue Rainsford couldn't be more different from and it says, you know who. And I'm presuming <laughs> the you know who and that is Sally Rooney, who is writing these very you know, books that are really speaking to people in a very kind of real way, conversations with friends, normal people about relationships, about real life. You are in this totally other, I suppose it's sci-fi, really. <laughs> um, what is it that draws you to that? Because your last book as well was also in that genre too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm also assuming that, you know, who is Sally Rooney? I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure who else it could be, but... I presume it's her. Yeah, yeah, Um which, you know, which I'm happy to be mentioned in reference to her in whatever capacity. But um, yeah, no, I think for me, you know, I never sit down and say to myself, I'm going to write a piece of science fiction or I'm going to write some dystopian fiction or I'm going to write something magic realist. You know, I sit down to write something because I have an image or a concept or a character that just won't leave me alone and that I that I become fixated on and I think okay there's something here there's something meaty or sinewy or rich here and it just always happens that I guess sort of the way that I'm oriented to the world you know that a strange element will come through and inflect it so yeah when I was writing follow me to ground you know I wanted to write about yes a girl who is not really a girl but I want to write about a girl who's sort of bearing all of the um, prescriptions around femininity in society. And that's how she became strange and unearthly because the expectations and the images that we load up onto the female body are are inherently strange. And, you know, I wrote a story for RTE, um, very beautifully read by Sir Ronan called Shorn. Like that was a piece of historical fiction until I realized, oh, the hair is sentient in this piece. The hair has, uh, the shorn hair has some sort of sentient power. And that was the only point that the story became strange for me. But I guess just for me, when that strangeness, that science fiction element or whatever you want to call it comes in, that's, that's when the story comes alive for me. And sort of maybe 
paradoxically where I feel, oh, I'm actually making some sort of comment now. I'm actually saying something about the real world or saying something new, but I have to go through that, that kind of weird vein. Well, going back a bit more to the real world, I mean, it's just listening to you talk, it really sounds like perhaps Ireland's treatment of women um, has influenced your work in quite a, a bit. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my first book, it was it came out like two days before repeal, you know, and I remember walking to Hodges Vegas for the launch and there were all these amazing people canvassing. And I was thinking, like, God, how do you have the strength to to canvas at this point? It's been it's been so long. And I was just shaking all the time with with worry for the referendum and you know I and specific with uh with redder days I was thinking a lot about survivors of symphysiotomy you know and I remember reading the report um that they made to the UN and the UN classifying it as, as a form of torture and you know if you read that report and the experiences that those women suffered you know the hallucinations the near-death experiences um seeing their own organs um discarded in 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 refuse bags like in the operating rooms you know you read something like that or if you were to see something like that or or read something like that in a different format on a different platform you would class it as dystopia or horror but this is happening in Ireland up until I think the last physiotomy was in the 60s yeah you know? um and then of course the mother and baby homes which you know are still just so present in all of our thinking and are so present as physical structures and the systems that enables that sort of casual brutality towards women are still very much in full swing. Um, so yeah, I was thinking a lot about the ongoing, the relentless maltreatment of female bodies, especially when they are in a state of motherhood. And that was sort of where there's a character in the book, Ula, a mother character who, you know, I thought of her in terms of, um, this latent but also this constant anger and rage and mistreatment and this legacy that Irish women are still dealing with you know it's not it's not a legacy yet it's still you know it's st- it's just present it's still our daily reality yeah no it's very interesting how you take all that and then put it into these this other world and these other experiences in order to illustrate your feelings about it it's kind of yeah. it's very clever it's very deep and it's also very visual and I know we'll talk about that later you are a very visual person too having studied visual art um, and all the rest um I wanted to ask you then about your own uh upbringing because well in talking about the twins in in the book you said Anna, Adam and Anna and they are sort of at the centre of it, these uh, people trying to keep things going in this this failed commune. Um, why did you want to write about twins? A couple of reasons. Um, one reason was, was a narrative reason or a kind of, um, well, not a narrative reason, a thematic reason, because I wanted to show how, again, how your environment can bear down on you and how it can shift and alter two people who have the exact same ontological upbringing, you know, um, in totally different ways. They're radically different people. And then also I myself was a twin in utero. And um, for I didn't know this until I was, I think I was second year at university. And I started having these intense dreams, um, either where I myself was miscarrying or, there was, uh, I remember there was one, I was in the back of a car and I was looking at this boy who looked very much like me and we were tossing this orb of light back and back and fro. And I remember saying to my mother, I was like, you know, mom, I'm having these 
incredibly intense, distracting dreams. And my mom said to me, you know, you were meant to be a twin, but but the twin didn't survive. And I, I was really, I was interested in the dreams changed very much in substance after that. And they became much more, um, 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 companionly, you know, they, they became much more restorative. And also I, again, I'm very interested in what, in somatic knowledge and bodily knowledge and, you know, to, to witness at a somatic level a, a death like that in the womb and to not have any cognizant knowledge of it or to not, you know, have any linguistic or rational acknowledgement of it. But, you know, how does an experience like that linger in your flesh and linger at a somatic level and how does it progress over time? And and as well, to have sort of um, bereavement or loneliness, again, as an ontological fact and to be born into those experiences the way you might be born into your blue eyes, your blonde hair, you know, I'm really interested in how those experiences sit alongside other more um, genetic experiences in the body. Sue, you were in your 20s when your mother told you about this, um, that that you had been a twin, that your other twin had miscarried. Did you feel um, it was strange that she'd waited so long to tell you? Did you feel like you would have liked to have that information earlier? Or how did you feel about that? No, I mean, I think, you know, um, what age am I now? I'm 33. So, you know, things like that are obviously just not spoken about typically. And, you know, my mother is a very open, per- you know, we would not have a um, a stagey or a, um, or a, uh, we would have a very open conversational relationship, you know, like we are friends. So, I think it was just that issue that so many Irish women are confronted with, where it's, you know, is it better to say or better not to say? Like, what causes more distress? And again, like, obviously, so many of my research themes are now around maternal trauma and female silencing. And I think, you know, she was a young mother. It was her first pregnancy. I don't think anyone was really speaking to her about it or giving her any of the... um, the comfort or support she might have needed, you know. Um, so no, I mean, and then as soon as she could tell I had some sort of awareness of it or as soon as she interpreted I might be upset by it, she told me right away. And she told me in a very spiritual sort of gentle way, you know, in case I, I think in case I freaked out. She sounds amazing. How mm. did she feel that, I'm, I'm just fascinated as to how she felt that somehow perhaps in, in a dream domain that that, that the um, miscarried twin perhaps was communicating with you in some way or that there was something in you that had a sense of what had happened. Yeah. What, what was her reaction to that? Yeah, she was very matter-of-factly open to it. You know, like she's very open-minded and I actually, I have this huge um, pigmentation pattern on my left forearm that um, we think now is actually the DNA of, of my twin showing up. And people often think that it's dodgy fake tan, but it sort of spreads up my shoulder um, when I've been in the sun. But yeah, I think, no, to her, she, you know, she just thought um, on an emotional level, yeah, that it made sense. Yeah, it didn't bother her at all. Well, she sounds great. So tell me a little bit about <laughs> growing up um, and where you're from and your parents and um, how all these kind of interesting ways of looking at the world uh, crystallised. What were you like as a child? God, I was really strange and awkward and um, <laughs> <laughs> nothing special. Um, yeah, I was very quiet. I was very readerly. Um, 
you know, cripplingly insecure, all of the, all of those things. Um, but yeah, my parents were um, incredible in that they really, I have one younger sister, one, one sibling, and, you know, they really encouraged us to read and to read widely, widely. So I think that's where any sort of, um, any time I come close to having an interesting outlook on the world, I think that's very much, you know, where it comes from is just being able to read so much and in such depth when, you know, well, my whole, my whole childhood, we were either being read to or reading. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Sandy Mount, very blessed childhood, very, very beautiful childhood. And we traveled a lot and yeah, I mean, it's sort of, um, I'm, I'm very boring in that respect. I've no, uh, <laughs> and what did your parents do, Sue? Uh, so my dad was in film production for years and we were in and we were kind of around LA and New York and my mom was an assistant in an architectural firm and she stopped working when she was pregnant with me and then my dad moved into nanotechnology and he's in software now and yeah I mean but they are both so they are both such wonderful readers and they are both so um they're very open-minded they're very artistically minded in lots of ways um my dad has this huge breadth of knowledge this huge frame of reference around philosophy and film and literature and yeah, I mean, there were just always these, we had lots of, my sister and I growing up, we had lots of more, um, we had very nuanced points of reference, I suppose, in, in general conversation, which I think has been a real gift to both of us. My sister's a casting agent, she she's also in production now, so... Yeah, we've been very lucky. You you mentioned living in New York and L.A., which I'm sure must have been great um, as a younger person to have those experiences. But then you came back to Ireland and you went to Mount Anvil, which I don't <laughs> I believe you didn't like very much. Tell me about that. It was it was a bad fit. It, it was a bad fit. Um, Why? It was just it was a very I mean, it's interesting now, like looking back in my 30s but it was a very materialistic place I mean again like I say I was a very unremarkable child I demonstrated no real affinity for anything until I was in fifth year when I moved to the institute and then it was like oh she might have a proficiency for English and you know um and my love of art history and visual art kind of came to the fore then but yeah all the way through fourth year I was unspectacular and you know, I was in no way an athlete or anything like that, which was quite prized there. And yeah, the teachers, just the the the, the disdain that they had for for those of us who were not um, proficient at some, you know, who were not sort of. Um, I mean, there was certainly a bodily ideal floating around, you know, and and I did not conform to that by any stretch and of course like all the students pick up on that kind of energy as well you know and the, what do you mean there was a bodily ideal sorry sue just i mean the the levels of anorexia in the school were weren't you know i think there was a lot of body shaming you know and also any kind of teenage pregnancy or anything like that was just totally i think pretty violently swept under the rug um you know and, and i look back now and think god like none of us any i mean it's like I know a lot of people have had a, had a positive experience there and look back on it um, in a positive light. But I think for a lot of us, we didn't have the vocabulary. You know, no one was talking about body shaming or um, and if someone did have an eating disorder, that was also very much, you know, that went unnamed to. But yeah, I was never happier than the day I rocked up at the Institute with, 
and there was no PE, there was no religion. Um, it was just standard classes. And, you know, obviously each school has its trials and tribulations. But yeah, definitely a huge weight was lifted uh, when I left there. What about um, in terms of the private school sort of elite ethos, you know, because it's something that um, in the Irish Times, Ross Carol Kelly is obviously yeah, there yeah, talking yeah. about and Mount Anvil and schools like Mount Anvil often prop up. Did you have any sense of that, that there was this sense of elitism as well and uh, in, yeah. in the school? Yeah, definitely. I mean, now, again, looking back, I didn't realise it at the time, but, you know, for 14-year-old girls to, again, be cognizant of you know, real estate or what kind of cars people are driving is just so bizarre. Uh, And, you know, girls coming in, I remember there was a fad of girls coming in with brown Thomas ribbons holding their hair and ponytails, things like that, you know, that, yeah, it was definitely, um, it was a culture of elitism. And I, 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 I do wonder about, I wonder what it's like now. I wonder what it's like there now. Because obviously, you know, you get a snapshot of a place at a particular time. But I do wonder what core values uh, remain remain in place there. And I must reiterate what you said. Obviously, lots of people and probably people in your class would look back on the very same experiences mm, and yeah. have said they'd had a lovely time and mm. that, that everything was grand. It's different people's perceptions of, of, a, of a time in their life can be can be so different. Absolutely. But um, I probably would think that the fact that you travelled and experienced perhaps a lot more than maybe other people who were in that school also led you to sort of observe things in a different way. Would that be fair? I don't know. When I was, when we were in the States, we were always sort of in and out and moving around and I was quite young. Um, and I think dad had finished up, you know, even when I, before I was 11. So I don't know. I think possibly it was the reading that saved me to a degree because I, I had this, I had this other life that, I, you know, when I went home in the evenings, I was, you know, I was reading or I was watching film, watching, watching, you know, um, kind of off the wall cinema. And I think the sort of, I had reserves for my emotional life, if you will, that I could kind of draw on when I was feeling stressed out at school. And tell me about then studying uh, visual art in, in Trinity or art history. What drew you to that? Was that also part of stuff that you, from things you'd read or films you'd seen? Why were you, why were you drawn to that area? I'm so interested in, and, and my, you know, remaining love for the visual arts because it is, you know, at, at the moment, it, it's still like 30 to 40% of my working day alongside writing fiction. I'm I'm so interested in visual art as a system of thought and how art, especially contemporary art, you know, brings new sensations and new, new ideas into the world and how it creates, you know, an installation can create an environment that allows for all sorts of realizations and revelations and and again emotional experiences that might be restorative or cathartic or in some way therapeutic you know I'm so interested in the overlap with trauma theory and and visual art um but I think when when I've decided to put art history on the old c you know cao um it was to do just that that experience of of looking of long looking and the longer you look the more the more you're equipped with 
and the the deeper an amount of time you can spend with an individual artwork, how that can change you. And that's something I try and do in my writing as well to a degree is like if you can enter into a system of symbols or images, um, you know, how can it change you over time? Now, you'd written this book, Redder Days, which you said like you had the idea for, you know, seven or eight years ago. Um, and it was about it's about this contagion, the sort of pandemic, all of that kind of thing. And then you you put the manuscript in on the very day yeah. <laughs> that Leo Varadkar stood up and said we have to close the schools. Were your publishers kind of like, what's going on here? Oh, my God. Well, you, you'd kind of just written what was going on <laughs> in some ways. It was. Yeah, it was so awful. Um, yeah, it was March 14th. <laughs> and I remember I sent it wasn't the final, final manuscript, but it was final-ish. You know, we were kind of just tweaking it after that. But I sent it to my amazing editor, Fiona Murphy. And then I was teaching a bit at the time. And as soon as I sent it in, I got the emails from the respective universities saying, don't come to campus. You know, we're, the campuses, everything's closed down. And yeah, I remember Fiona saying to me, she was like, God, there's really, there's quite a bit of overlap, isn't there? You know, and at first it was sort of novel and like, oh, who would have thought? But then obviously lockdown worsened the, and we were more and more confined and more and more people's mental health was in jeopardy. And yeah, there were times when it felt uncanny and I was thinking, Jesus, this would have been really good research for the book. And then there were times when it just felt... Yeah, I just felt like I'd sent this hex out and how do I rein it, how do I reel it back in, you know? But yeah, I mean, my I was concerned that people would try and, um, or be compelled to parse it as a sort of pandemic novel. And one or two people did say to me, did you write this over the course of the pandemic? And I, you know, I was like, I'm flattered. You think I can write a 60,000 word manuscript and get a publishing deal over you know like a four or five month period whatever it was at the time when people were asking but yeah the the unfortunate parallels are not lost on me for a second and how have you coped during lockdown yourself has has writing that you know this story of people essentially I suppose locked in and locked down did that help at all with your own experience it's funny you know I I mean personally the way I cope is to is to work. Like I do have quite a compulsive attitude to work. So like on a personal level, I just, you know, I run quite a lot and I read quite a lot and I write quite a lot and I try and have a relatively strict structure to the day. And that keeps me afloat and from spiraling into existential crisis. But yeah, no, the book, I mean, the Redder Days is so, I had to put so much imaginative work into the book that it still very much occupies that part of my brain so um no I haven't I haven't um made any correlations with the book specifically to to my own <laughs> to my time at the desk or to my time in front of the tv or in the kitchen and you say you're writing a lot which is exciting what are you writing about have you got a third book on the go and are you going to have another big prediction in it are we going to find <laughs> out what's happening next I hope not. I really hope not. I started, I've been working on a collection of short stories on novella for a really long time, um, which I'm hoping is sort of getting closer to, to a finishing point. And one of the central pieces in that is about Virginia Clem, Edgar Allan Poe's wife, who he married when, you know, it was like a, she was a child bride and 
there's documentation now that she was, you know, disabled in some way. And, you know, but but obviously that there's like no documentation. I need to get, I need to find the archive that has the letters or something because there there's just this huge lacuna around her. And I'm also trying to write something that takes place in Zimbabwe, which my partner is from there and we spent a lot of time there, but I've never, it's the one piece I've tried to, positioned the characters in Zimbabwe and because you know it's just so fraught and problematic landing yourself in another in another country <laughs> for the reasons of fiction and then I'm also working on a on another novel which I won't say too much about because it's pretty pretty fresh but I really hope that none of the central themes come true for this I'll just put can you say way. one of the central themes even just so that we can Put it out there and make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah, what what, are, what well, kind of thing are you writing about? Uh, I'm writing again about um, maternal, uh, mother and daughter relationship. And again, the expectations that we have for mothers and, and for daughters. And it's it's again, there there's a sinister landscape element I just can't get away from the sinister landscape you know I sit down I think oh I'm writing something this is so fresh this is so different and then I look back at my notes it's like, oh you've just rehashed you know everything you've been writing for the last 10 years or so um but yeah sorry I'm 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 not being very eloquent about it like I say it's still sort of in bullet point yes. formation in my brain yeah no, that's fair enough, Sue. And listen, <laughs> did you recently get married too? Did you have a pandemic wedding? We had a pandemic wedding, yeah. How did yeah. that go? It went well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, we're still hoping to have um, a proper a party, you know, maybe sometime next year. But, you know, we've been together like 11 and a half years. So we always, it was always on the schedule, on the to-do list. And we had we had a really beautiful day in the registry office on, um, on the canal and the sun was out and the people at the registry office are so lovely. Um, everyone was really chill. We had a quick uh, sip of champagne on the canal afterwards. And like I said, it was gorgeous. We had six people back at the house, back at my parents' house and drank far too much and ate far too much. And yeah, it was everything you could hope for given the circumstances. Yeah, it's funny. I bumped into, well, I didn't bump into them. I saw this couple down near the canal uh, who had just got married and, you know, sort of, you know, you look at it and you think, there's a sadness to that, but they were so happy and it was so beautiful just watching them walk through, um, you know, Grand Canal Square. And there's also something romantic about kind of, I think, I don't know, maybe you, you've experienced <laughs> it. Was there something romantic about getting married at such a strange time? It was sort of romantic. Yeah. Um, again, also just the sheer novelty of being out and about, you know, slightly outside of the 5K because uh, you had an essential reason. <laughs> And, you know, people, we came out and people were beeping at us and everyone was waving at us. I mean, like you say, when you saw that couple, people yeah. are just so galvanized by the sight of anything Absolutely. in any way I, joyful. I went, over to, I went over to them and I was really apologetic, but I had to find out, like, who, you know, who, what their names were. I took yeah, a photo yeah, yeah. of them. I put it on Twitter. <laughs> and of course, Ireland being Ireland, I got an email like the next day from someone who Who's they were the mother of yeah, the person related, who I actually obviously. knew and I didn't know. It was so <laughs> funny. But you're right. It gives you this sense of happiness that something good, good things are still happening in this yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was really, like I say, you know, we've been together a long time. I mean, I do, my heart does break for couples who, you know, they've had their plans totally 
washed washed away and you know people who a, a big a big resonant party of the day is, is really important to them um I mean we're very lucky in that we were always going to just do something small for the registry office and probably because everyone our close family was so desperate for some sort of an outlet we ended up celebrating it maybe more than we would have well I'm, I'm glad there was too much drink and too much food and um, that all sounds very lovely I just want to ask you finally before you go there's some people would have an aversion to dystopian novels like, mm. um, you know, and to science fiction and to mm. books that are in such another realm. I'd love you to kind of maybe convince some people listening, thinking, oh, that sounds too out there for me mm. as to why it might be worth trying Redder Days, even if it feels like, oh, that's not quite my thing. Sure. Yeah. Again, I suppose I'll repeat a little bit what I said earlier, which is that I feel often with these categories of fiction that are maybe not so mainstream, that they do have a way of sneaking up on you in terms of delivering real human emotion, you know? Um, I think that a book that sort of comes in at an oblique angle or seems to be working in the periphery of the real world can sometimes have a uh, a more powerful perspective on yeah like human emotion and human relationships and what it means to be a person and you know what all of our deep set emotions mean and how they reverberate and yeah I think you know again I'll say I'm never motivated by writing a piece of fiction that looks like a dystopian piece or a science fiction piece like I'm I'm motivated by how people behave towards one another. Yeah. And I'm just going to leave it with a with a quote from the commune leader, Cohen, which sort of adds to what we've been talking about, the life imitating art kind of thing. The planet thus distressed had found a new way to purge, but we did not know why everybody it moved through. It moved through like a storm, why it turned a person to rough hands and probing tongues, why it landed in the body as an unrelenting fever. So there is definitely that kind of timeliness. And Mm. um, I think people should try it even if they feel like, okay, it's not for me. I I mean, I I look at things like Margaret Atwood and Mm. those kind of people who, like you say, while the circumstances might seem removed, in a way, it's all accessible because it's about emotion. It's about universal truths. And you write so well about the themes that um, in terms of how women have been affected, especially in Ireland. And even if it comes out in a whole different world, they're still there and still vibrant and accessible. So um, well done and congratulations. And I'm dying to read the next one as well. <laughs> thank you so much, Roisin. And thank you for that very eloquent summary of the book. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, Sue Rainsford, thanks very much for joining us and we'll have you back again when you get the other one going too (laughs) that's all we have time for that was sue rainsford there and the book is called redder days the podcast is produced by me roisin ingle by jennifer ryan and suzanne brennan with jj vernon on sound mind yourselves and i will talk to you next time
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.